now. Good afternoon and welcome to Driving Forces, a weekly show about politics and policy and a focus on city, state and national politics and the issues that matter to you. I'm Jeff Simmons, and today I am joined by my lovely co-host, Celeste Katz. Good afternoon, Celeste. Good afternoon, Jeff. So for our listeners, each week we always talk about issues that often can be divisive and, uh, and partisan. Uh, as much as we try not to be partisan in our questions and our answers, uh, often we you know, engage with listeners who are very strong-minded, and Celeste and I have been talking about that a lot and thinking how we can frame uh, one of our shows around the topic of how to have a discussion without, uh, without cursing at each other or <laughs> devolving into fiery debate. And, uh, you know, and so that kind of shaped what we're going to be doing a little today. Yeah, exactly. I think that there's a there is a way to do this, but uh, and everyone says that uh, or complains about there being a lack of civility in American politics and in American public life these days. But you know, talking about fixing it is one thing, and fixing it is another. And I, I'm Jeff, and I don't think you and I fight as much, but we've we've you know uh, gotten into it a little bit sometimes with the guests or with the callers, and uh, you know I think that's healthy. But uh, as you said, we're going to talk about a healthy way to to do that to disagree and not, uh, you know, not give up your your personal opinions or your personal stances that are close to your heart, but uh, how to do it without, uh, uh, without hurting yourself or others. And you think about, you know, whether it's family gatherings, for instance, when you get together around the holidays right. and the topics that you do or you purposely do not talk about while you're sitting at the dinner table. And, you know, you talk about what you don't say you don't shouldn't bring up politics or religion, for instance. Right. At work or with your family or uh, on a date, something like that. Uh, yeah. So that's, uh, uh, you know, these are the sort of uh, the traditional wisdom, you know, the conventional wisdom, I should say, is that uh, uh, these are not things you want to talk about if you want things to remain calm and and everybody to have a good time. And maybe that's not true. I mean, I grew up. Uh, remembering uh, I first got interested in politics listening to my father and my late grandfather debating uh, the political issues of the day and one of them was on one side of the fence and one of them was on the other side of the fence was it a and, discussion uh, or a debate it was absolutely well it was both it was a both I mean whatever had happened what was happening with the presidency at the time or with Congress or with uh, you know national policies or the military whatever they both uh, they were both very reasoned in their arguments, and I really learned a lot from them. There was never any table pounding, and there was never any uh, uh, attempt to to belittle or humiliate or or denigrate the other person. But it was uh, it was something that actually was a, a foundational part of my growing up, listening to these these thoughtful but entirely civil and respectful debates. And that leads us to our first guests, plural listeners, because we're going to have two guests on right now uh, because of a book that we happen to pick up. Uh, Our first guests are Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers, authors of the book, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening by Nelson Books. They're also the hosts of the four-year-old podcast, Pantsuit Politics. They are both former lawyers, and they're on different ends of the political spectrum with Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. Welcome to Driving Forces, Sarah and Beth. Do I have you here? Hi, Sarah and Beth. Welcome to Driving Forces. 
Hi, thank you for having us. So first of all, I'll start off with you, Sarah. Tell us a little about your background, how you two came up with the idea for Pantsuit Politics, and then lead into the book, I Think You're Wrong But I'm Listening, and how it evolved into that. Well, Beth and I had not time. We went to college together. We were sorority sisters. And we stayed in touch through Facebook, as people often do these year, these, this time of our lives. But we had not been close. We were definitely not close friends. In fact, it took a few months into doing the podcast before we met for the first time in 13 years. But through our reconnection on Facebook, we started talking politics. Mainly, Beth would guest post on my blog at the time, which was primarily a parenting blog in which I would occasionally write about politics because it has been a lifelong interest of mine. I worked for Hillary Clinton's 2007 presidential campaign and then in Washington, D.C. for several years. And so I would, I couldn't, I couldn't, um, Stop talking about politics, even on a parenting blog. <laughs> and so I reached out to Beth and said, hey, would you, these posts are really well received. Have you ever thought about doing a podcast? Because I had been wanting to do one for a long time. I thought I would do an interview podcast with women in politics, but it just kind of sat there. I never did anything with it. And she said, what's a podcast? And I said, don't worry, we'll figure that out. And <laughs> you always do. We always started. do. That's right. We'll figure it out in post. No big deal. And then we, so we, we did a one test call. I will never forget it. And we talked for about 45 minutes and we, you know, instantly clicked and had a really good connection about different issues. And I thought, okay, we're not going to talk anymore unless we're recording it. And that is how Pansy Politics was born. So what's the secret or the secrets to having productive political conversations, particularly when you disagree with someone? The thing that we have found is that first we need to start with ourselves. So I am the right-leaning voice on the show and in the book. And when we come to a political conversation, I think of myself not as the right-leaning presence in this conversation, but as a person who has a set of values and principles and relationships. And so coming to the conversation, thinking first about who do I want to be in this conversation and what kind of relationship do I want to have at the end of it enables me to not just parrot the talking points that I hear on cable news or on the radio or even from politicians who I like, but really think through it a little bit more critically. So that's what we really encourage people to do first. Take off that team jersey that you're wearing that says R or D on it, or if you're a libertarian or Green Party, even take those off too, and come to the conversation and show up as a whole person. And when we do that and when we ask ourselves, where do we want to end this conversation? I want to learn something. I want to be closer to this person. I want to have a better understanding of the world. It really sets the conversation up for success. And I will say... Part of the reason we ended up after several years of doing the podcast, writing the book, is because there's no one secret with regards to convincing someone else to agree with you. We don't have a secret for that. There isn't a secret to that. There's no shortcut. That's not even really should be the goal of any political conversation. What we discovered is that we have a practice, several different um, ways of approaching conversation, ways of thinking through our own values, ways of engaging with media that can help in these really seemingly intractable conversations. And that's what we try to lay out in the book. And maybe and maybe we can go in that same order, Sarah, than Beth. Um, one of the things you talk about in the book is why these conversations can, you know, people can get sort of punchy or sort of verbally aggressive. I think you mentioned one example where you guys had sort of a traditional debate instead of the, the type of discussion you'd usually have on the podcast. And it got kind of heated, right? So uh, yeah. why, why do things go that way? And, uh, and how do you stop that? 
Well, because when you walk into a conversation or a debate, walk into what should be a conversation and approach it like a debate, as we did on our podcast, then what you're trying to do is win. You're trying to have gotcha moments and have the best statistic and the best, you know, story to tell. And you're not really getting curious about how the other person feels. And you're not trying to better understand both your points and their points. You're just trying to score points. And when we shift from trying to score points to trying to understand each other's perspectives, it really changes the feel. Everybody's less defensive. The stakes don't seem as high. Therefore, there's not, when there's high stakes, you can justify all manner of bad behavior. And so when we can shift that sort of orientation to what we're doing with one another, it can really change things. And um, when, you know, we were just talking a little bit earlier in the intro about uh, how there's this sort of conventional wisdom that politics and religion, certain topics are kind of off the table if you want things to do smoothly, like a, like a party or, uh, you know, a, a sort of public function, whatever. Um, but you guys encourage actually talking about politics and talking about things that, that you disagree on. How come, how come that's the case? Well, because we don't typically go into those subjects with our friends and family because we've learned that it's impolite and uncomfortable. When we do enter those conversations, we kind of take on that debate format that Sarah was just describing as so counterproductive. And if we want to have better conversations, conversations where we're really curious and talking about solving problems um, and investing in our communities more, we have to practice those conversations. We're not going to just be able to turn on a dial and suddenly be able to disconnect from kind of a national um, news media frenzy. So we think it's important to practice like anything else. It's like playing the piano or doing yoga or riding a bike. You know, we need to do this all the time with each other so that we get better at it. We have language available to us that's different than what we hear on television. We're able to ask better questions. We refine our own thinking through the process. When we're only talking politics with people who pat us on the back and make us feel like we're so smart and right and better than everybody else, we're, we're stuck, and I think you can see the results of that arrested development in how our Congress functions. And I, should, I want to add, too, that there's a really gendered perspective on the idea that you don't make people uncomfortable, you don't talk about politics or religion for women. I mean, I think that we receive that message to make people uncomfortable, not uncomfortable with our opinions. But what we found through our podcast and the book is that so many communities, so many people are hungry for that perspective, are hungry for the perspectives of people, not just women, but other groups who have been traditionally excluded. I mean, we have, would have male listeners reach out to us when we would have male guest hosts or interview males on the show and say, hey, I listen to this podcast because I so rarely get to hear two female voices talking about politics. That's what I'm here for. That's what I need in my life. And I, you know, I think that that is really important when we say everybody needs to talk politics is because we need everybody's perspective. So uh, at the outset of this segment, I mentioned that you created the podcast uh, Pantsuit Politics four years ago. That was before the election of Donald Trump. So, uh, Beth, how has this changed your approach and the advice you give? Because I'm assuming that probably uh, the feedback that you get might be a little more uh, um, in some cases angst ridden, in some cases fiery, because people have been very charged up over the last few years. Yeah, we like to joke that we started out to do nuance in the University of Wisconsin-Trump, and it's been an interesting ride since then. 
I would say this, you know, um, there's a life coach named Brooke Castillo who talks about how money isn't good or bad, it's neutral, and, and money makes you more of who you are. So it doesn't, it doesn't ruin you or make you a better person, it just makes you more of who you are. And I think in some ways the Trump presidency makes us all a little bit more of who we are. If we have it in us to be um, really passionate and angry all the time, it is easy to be really passionate and angry all the time in the Trump era. And that's not wrong. It's not wrong to feel passionately about what's going on. It's not wrong to be concerned and upset at certain points. What we have tried to do is say, okay, what I want to be is more open-hearted and more curious and more connected to other people. And I want to let the Trump presidency work on me in that way. It is difficult, but I don't want to feel a sense of resentment towards this person. Not because, you know, if you're a person who is really concerned about what the president is doing, um, it's not because it makes you it, – it, it's not going to affect him for us to be more compassionate towards him. It's going to affect us. It's going to make us better people to keep working on these issues. And we just try to keep doing that with our listeners. And, and there are tipping points for everybody where that becomes untenable. But those should be the exception, not the rule. And that's the point of continuing to practice these conversations. If everything is at that tipping point, then it's all kind of meaningless. And if you're just joining us, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live on WBAI.org. Uh, I'm Celeste Katz here with Jeff Simmons, and we are speaking to Sarah Stewart-Holland and Beth Silvers about their book, I Think You're Wrong, by, But I'm Listening. And um, so I wanted to ask you guys, um, you can you can definitely see how people get into it if it's Democratic versus Republican or you'd say it was Trump versus Clinton and so on. But uh, first, obviously, we have to get through a primary season. So you'll have people who are probably in large part in agreement on certain uh, a lot of issues, uh, say, on the Democratic side where we have a very crowded field. But they're still going to want to advocate for a certain candidate over another one. Uh, so do you think there's a difference there? Because uh, people can still get very heated in those type of discussions, even if they agree on a lot of things. How do you how do you work with that? Well, as a as a person who worked for Hillary Clinton in 2007 during the primary she faced off of Barack Obama, I definitely know there can be <laughs> right. high stakes. High emotion involved in a primary. But I think the practice still applies, which is I would have been better served as a Clinton staffer had I been more curious about why people were supporting Barack Obama and less self-righteous about why they should have been supporting Clinton. I would have learned more. I would have understood my own values and why I supported her. Like, I would have I, – I, I can't imagine how different and less frustrating, although – just as difficult that experience would have been had I oriented myself in that primary differently than I did when I was, you know, 23 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got about two minutes left. I uh, just would like to get some parting advice from you for our listeners, uh, because each week we are uh, opening up the lines uh, for folks to call and tell us what's on their mind. And so when people convey their opinions, what do you want them to think about first? Give us give them and us some advice. I think the most important thing that you can take from our book is that we should all center ourselves in our values, both in terms of what outcomes we're advocating for and the way we advocate for them. So if you're a person who really believes in equal justice or social justice, you want to think about expressing those views through this lens of both the outcomes you're looking for and a just process of advocating for those outcomes. If you're a person of faith, 
you want to think about your faith, both in terms of the outcomes you're looking for, the substantive legislation, and the way you communicate about it, because that's how we're going to move closer to one another. And that, that again, is difficult. It takes practice. But if we can bring our conversation, it's not that we need to be civil in terms of being polite to each other or always looking for compromise or agreement. We can and should strongly disagree with each other. We should just do it living our values in the process. So how can people learn more about Pantsuit Politics and about the book? I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. Well, the book is available from all booksellers, and you can go to the book website, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening.com. To learn more about our show, the podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts, and our website is pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, where you can find all about the podcast and us. So I would like to thank you both, Sarah Stewart-Holland and Beth Silvers, for joining Celeste Katz and me here on Driving Forces today. Thanks so much for having us. So as we await our next guest, one of the things you know that's interesting is mm-hmm. that in reading this book, I thought about how many times I've just walked away from conversations at cocktail parties and other events thinking, I'm just not even going to get involved right now because mm-hmm. the person who's voicing their opinion is just so fir- staunchly in one corner that they're not going to open up their minds and their ears to hear another side. No, that's sort of the, the classic saying. There are, you know, there are people who uh, listen and there are people who wait to talk. And sometimes uh, the the, uh, the latter are are not great uh, great company at, at cocktail parties or or at work or anything like that. I mean, if people are literally just not interested in hearing the other side, what I'm not sure how much of a learning experience that is. But uh, you know, maybe there's some sense of winning there, as as they uh, as our guest just mentioned. You know, and I'll I will listen when I believe that the person who is. Uh, saying, stating this opinion is open-minded enough to want to articulate it well and not get into a fiery debate. Sometimes you could just tell. Um, I was at a dinner recently with a husband and wife where the wife had been at Mar-a-Lago on New Year's Eve. Ah. And so I knew, you know, I want to avoid getting into politics. But then the husband started to explain to me why he supported Donald Trump on trade. And he really came up with an argument that made, whether I agreed or disagreed, Mm -hmm. I thought he gave a really reasonable argument for why he came to that decision. And I thought, okay, this is the type of discussion I can have, whereas often that is not the case. Uh, In the book, by the way, what's interesting, I opened up to the page that I flagged on this Mm -hmm. at the very end when they talk about how to continue this conversation. And I want our listeners to hear this, too, because we're going to open up the lines in the second half hour. We are waiting for our next guest to to call in here. Uh, James, our engineer, is going to check the backup person in the meantime to see if if we uh, can get our person on the line. Uh, the advice that they give is, as they said, to take off your jersey. Don't just wear the Republican or the Democrat or the independent jersey when you're starting this, but kind of step back and find out your why. Like, why is this important and why, you know, and and get to know the other person's views as well. Well, I think that, you know, it's sort of, I I don't even know if tactically is is the right word for it, but even when you're having that kind of discussion, even uh, like a passionate or heated discussion about politics, there's a difference between trying to convince the other person that you're right and trying to convince the other person that they're wrong. And if you want to, if you are passionate in your beliefs, maybe you want to uh, convince the other person to to see it your way, to maybe adopt some of, you, some of the you know your ways of thinking. And uh, in the other case, just beating the other person down in an argument, uh, they're probably not going to be hugely inclined to be like 
God, what a brilliant idea. Uh, so that's sort of, uh, you know, it, it may seem like sort of uh, mincing words there a little bit, but I really do think that there's that there's sort of a qualitative difference between trying to convince somebody and trying to defeat them. Oh, agreed. I, you know, I, I just have a problem when people are trying to prove their point and will not hear another side to be able to, you know, accept that. You know, it's, it's sort of like whenever I do have a debate with someone saying, okay, there's your side, there's my side, and then there's kind of the middle that we have to kind of agree right. to right. agree to disagree, right. which you and I do often. Right. Well, which is, which is totally <laughs> fine, which is totally fine. I mean, uh, okay, so we are ready for our next guest, actually. Okay, awesome. Well, yeah, Talking maybe, about fiery debate. Yeah, happened. speaking of which, uh, <laughs> um, uh, you're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. And we're uh, happy to welcome back to the show New York State Senator Michael Gianneris. He's the deputy leader of the state Senate. He represents Western Queens. And a couple of days ago, he penned a guest column in Time Magazine about the need for bail reform here in New York State. And uh, his, his the co-byline on that piece just happened to be a fellow named John Legend. So, Senator, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me, Charles. That was a, a fun experience. Okay, so obviously tell us how that happened. Uh, well, uh, John Legend is very, very active in the criminal justice reform arena. Um, and I, as you know, I'm the author of the, the bill to uh, reform bail in New York. Uh, and I got a call one night when I was sitting home from, from him, and he just called to thank me for all our work on this issue. And uh, when uh, when he asked what he could do to help, I suggested we, we work together on, a, on an opinion piece. And so we spent a couple of weeks drafting it, and, and there it is. Amazing. And so uh, tell the people a little bit about, if they didn't get a chance to, to, to check it out, uh, you know, what your arguments were for the, for the reforms. Well, we have more momentum than has ever existed um, to change the way bail works. Now, bail is, by definition, on its face, uh, a system that discriminates against poor people. Uh, there's no other way to look at it. If you have money, you pay bail, and you're on the streets. And if you don't, you sit on Rikers Island or some other jail waiting for your trial. And mind you, these are people that have not even been convicted of a crime. These are people waiting for their trial. Um, and so the whole idea we, we grow up learning about uh, innocence until proven guilty is on a practical level turned on its head in our system where people are really treated as guilty until proven wealthy enough to pay their bail. Uh, so there's no real criminal justice justification for requiring people to put money down to get out. Um, because you look at an example, uh, in an extreme case, like a Harvey Weinstein has been accused of awful things and is in his posh home uh, uh, in Manhattan or wherever uh, else he has homes uh, because he could afford to pay his way out. Now, if a young black man was accused of those same crimes, I assure you he would be uh, sitting on Rikers Island unable to, to afford his bail. So it's, it's an unfair system that is crying for reform, and we are uh, on the precipice of doing something very dramatic in New York that will... Uh, that will um, improve uh, lives and create more justice than we have today. So I had read that there had been some strides, some movement on this yesterday. Have there been? Has there been more advancement today? And where do we stand? Yes, I, in fact, I'm, I'm at the Capitol now. I was here past midnight working on this last night, and we started meetings with the Assembly early this morning. And I just came out of yet another meeting with uh, our Assembly colleagues. So we are uh, very, very, very close. We're just kind of figuring out the last bits and pieces of it, um, and uh, hopefully we'll get it done in time to pass it as part of uh, what we're doing uh, this week on the budget. 
So I had also noticed that the uh, District Attorneys Association is opposed to bail reform legislation because uh, that doesn't consider dangerousness in some form. Can you explain that a little and your uh, your side of that? Sure. So the bail in the pretrial system is intended to ensure the return of someone for court. So in theory, even if it's working the way it's supposed to, you're supposed to put money down for bail, and that's the incentive that you come back for your trial uh, in order to get your money back. Um, and so it's supposed to serve as some kind of financial impetus to not skip town and um, uh, and, and miss your court date. Uh, that is the only consideration is risk of flight that a court is, uh, in New York is supposed to consider in setting bail or setting any other conditions on someone's freedom pretrial. Uh, what some have suggested is that we include in uh, the process an evaluation of whether someone is a general danger to the community or not. It's almost like a pre-trial determination of someone's guilt. So a lot of the uh, reform advocates liken it to uh, that movie Minority Report where mm-hmm. they're trying to predict who's actually going to commit a crime or not. Uh, we have a system in place where uh, there is a trial by a jury of one's peers with witnesses and uh, a proper defense and all sorts of due process considerations where one's guilt is determined. We don't predetermine guilt. And uh, many are concerned that by inserting uh, an evaluation of general dangerousness that that will um, create a, a horribly unfair system that inevitably will be racially biased and uh, and have a detrimental impact on certain communities. And so there is a, a, a real desire to keep this debate restricted to what it is today and how the criminal justice system works today in New York, which is just evaluate what does it take to get someone to come back for their trial, at which point their guilt or innocence will be determined. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, sort of sort of relatedly, but maybe you, you know a little bit about this as well. The um, uh, I was at a forum on Sunday about parole reform, and we talked about the less is more legislation on, on uh, parole reform. And sort of similarly, uh, there are people who are hoping that we can we can amend some of the rules because of the lot of a lot of the people who re- are returned to jail when they're on conditional release. It's not for committing another crime. It's for something like missing a curfew, or uh, you know some sort of minor infraction. So I don't know if that is sort of tied in with a general feeling in Albany that uh, things have to change with our criminal justice system. Well, it is, and the bail reform. We like to say it's one of the three legs of the criminal justice reform stool we have, uh, because discovery reform and speedy trial reform are also necessary uh, components of making sure the system works fairly for everybody. Um, And so, yes, there is a cycle of mass incarceration, much of it pre-trial, which is, again, pre-conviction, that is subjecting thousands of young people uh, to uh, a cycle of of destruction. And uh, what happens oftentimes is, I'll give you an example why bail is in such desperate need of reform. Someone is sitting uh, uh, at Rikers Island accused of a crime, low-level crime, say, you know, misdemeanor or nonviolent uh, low-level felony, um, and they could spend a year or two years there waiting for their trial. Now, oftentimes, if these same people are actually convicted of the crime after trial, they'll be sentenced to less than that. And so inevitably, a prosecutor will come up to them at some point, you know, a few months in, and say, you could plead guilty tomorrow and be home. Um, Or you could sit here and wait it out and... Even if you're found innocent, you will already served all that time. Uh, and so many people make the hard choice and, and plead guilty to something they may not have even done. 
uh, just to get out, and now they have a criminal record, which means good luck getting a job, good luck getting into school, um, and they end up in, in a cycle that puts them back in the criminal justice system again, and we're destroying lives the way things work right now. Uh, we are uh, on the precipice of doing something really dramatic and important that is going to be transformative. There's, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of uh, discussion, uh, you know, for people in public service about doing things that impact people's lives. If we get this done, this will be one of the one of the crowning achievements of uh, of, of my efforts in public service. That because I believe it will really uh, create justice for thousands of, uh, of of young people who are on the short end of the stick right now. And presumably for these laws, uh, these changes in law to take place, they need the governor's signature. So how are you feeling about uh, the governor's positioning on, on these reforms right now? Um, well, we're in conversations. There's a lot of topics being bantered about uh, at the negotiating table because the budget's also due on Sunday. Um, and But this is one of the big ones that we're trying to get resolution on. The governor has um, made it clear he also wants to see reform in this area, and hopefully we can work together to get this done hopefully uh i don't know Wait, what's your what's the over under on that right now i think it's really good look we uh, the senate and the assembly are um uh, essentially um done with negotiations we are uh, just dotting our i's and crossing our t's um, and then uh, we'll engage the governor and, and try and get across the finish line with him but we all share the same goal in the sense of we want to reduce the mass incarceration problem uh, in the pre-trial context. Uh, and uh, once you share the same goal, I think it's easier to, to figure out the details. The problem in the past was everything was a trade. We had a, a Republican-led majority in the Senate that didn't actually share the goals. Um, and therefore, to get anything done, someone had to give something they didn't want to do to get something the other side didn't want to do. Uh, and what we've managed to do in 2019 with a Democratic majority in the Senate uh, is have everyone pulling in the same direction, and you've already seen the historic accomplishments uh, just in the first couple of months of the session that have followed from that. So we've got about two minutes left. Just a few other quick issues. Where do we stand on the uh, on the plastic bag ban? Uh, it's an important priority for many of us. It sounds like uh, we um, are going to get to an agreement on that, uh, and that will include uh, a ban on plastic bags, a fee on paper bags, and some fund to help the um, the indigent um, get reusable bags because we don't want to put anybody out where they have to go um, too far uh, out of pocket to replace the bags that they would normally get um, for free at the grocery store. Uh, but uh, but it's an important priority for environmentalists. Plastic waste is destroying the earth, uh, and this will be a, a significant achievement. Marijuana legalization? Um, it has proven more difficult than many of us uh, have hoped. Uh, it seems right now that it is unlikely to end up in the in the budget, but I'm hoping that we can continue the conversation and get it done before the session ends. Prevailing wage legislation. Uh, an important one for working uh, men and women of our state. Uh, the people who build our city and build our state deserve uh, the opportunity to have a good uh, middle-class life. Um, that is the story of organized labor and the value of organized labor. Uh, and um, I know the Senate is supportive. Uh, the Assembly seems to seems to be supportive. And uh, it's it's down to the last few days on that one. Um, Bill de Blasio versus Scott Stringer cage match. 
You know, I served with Scott Stringer in the assembly years ago, and, and I'm fond of the mayor, so I'm not I'm not taking sides. I'll just watch as a spectator. You know, and I wanted to end on a lighter note, asking if uh, when you connected with John Legend, if you were kind of hoping it would be for a duet. <laughs> someone, someone, when I told them the story, said, "Is it true he has the voice of an angel on the phone, like he does? <laughs> he does uh, when he sings. He's a very, very nice, uh, nice man, and." very uh, well-read and smart about this issue and having uh, his voice be a part of having his angelic voice i should say be a part of uh, of our efforts on bail reform uh, are, is very impactful and, and very helpful to the cause well next time you talk to him definitely tell him that we would love to have him here on uh, driving forces on uh, wbai anytime you want, you want chrissy teigen with him or just yeah. <laughs> of course <laughs> it's fine with me i'm cool you know either way either way um senator where can people find out more about you and your work um uh, we have a website uh nysenate.gov um gnrs.nysenate.gov i should say um and uh, all of our activities are there our upcoming events are there of course i'm all over my district doing mobile offices and in fact, I have one coming up with uh, my congresswoman. You may have heard of her, um, Alexandria <laughs> Ocasio-Cortez. We'll be together uh, April 6th um, in Woodside, Queens. Um, and uh, people can see me at subway stops, uh, schools. I'm all over as often as I can be. And I'm anxious to get back home from Albany so I can see my, uh, my constituents again. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us here on Driving Forces today. Thanks for having me. Take care. So uh, one of the things we also did want to let our listeners know about, and uh, we're hoping to have another call in a few moments from a special guest, uh, is that earlier today, someone the uh, New York City fixture uh, for quite a number of years, Henry Stern, the long-serving uh, parks commissioner, passed away. Uh, at age 83, he uh, passed away within the last uh, 24 hours. Uh, I believe it's a Thursday at his home, according to the New York Times. Uh, and both Celeste and I had worked with him on a number of stories over yeah, the years. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, he was uh, very famous for giving uh, what was called a, a park name. He would give people a park name. It was a nickname. It could be based on your regular name. It could be based on some, you know, the, the way you looked or what you did or where you came from and all these things. And uh, he even had little uh, sort of name badges, nameplates made up. Uh, so... Uh, I think any any one of us who has one of those uh, treasures it. Uh, my park name. What, are you going to give your park? My, yeah. Well, my park name. Well, <laughs> my park name comes from my regular name, Celeste Katz. So my park name is Sky Kitten. And mine, because my last name is Simmons, was Per Simmons, and I still have that uh, that badge somewhere. So at do home. I. But uh, this brings us to yeah. our next guest. Uh, Adrian Benepe also served as Parks Commissioner and was one of the first people, I believe, to break the news today on Twitter. Uh, welcome to Driving Forces, Adrian. Thanks. Good to be with you, Jeff. So I guess uh, the first question is, tell me about the impression that Henry Stern made on you and a little about his legacy. You know, Henry... Um there's the old cliche, they broke the mold when they made Henry Stern. Um, he um, completely uh, his own creature, and um, for good, you know, for, for good and not so good sometimes, but he was a truly devoted public servant, um, really to a fault, um, scrupulously honest, and worked uh, seven days a week, 10 or 12 hours a day. And genuinely loved the city and its streets, but particularly its parks and trees. And he had this kind of um, 
city kids' love of nature um, that that uh, we all profit from today because he loved trees and greenery so much and nature and fought passionately to protect it. He got the city council to pass laws making it a crime to cut down a tree, um, you know, with teeth. He created forever wild areas. He added 1,600 acres of parkland to the park system, you know, acre by acre. Um, more acreage has been added by anyone since um, Robert Moses was parks commissioner. So you're truly a dedicated public servant um, who also had a, a deeply funny and eccentric side. Well, that's actually one one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Maybe you can tell uh, tell our listeners some of the stories about. I mean, I remember talking to uh, Commissioner Stern a bunch of times. I think I met him. This 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 could be wrong. I have to check back. But I think I met him uh, by the Unisphere in Queens at an event that involved something like hot air balloons and a goat. Or it was it was it was, <laughs> it was nothing would surprise me. He, he, uh, it was weird. He was but, a genius about press. Like, um, he could get press for the opening of a door, and um, he always had, and he had people around him who were always putting him up to like doing really, really foolish things, like you know, dressing up in a gold jumpsuit and being a spider on a web when they're announcing some kind of web partnership, like <laughs> dressing up as a groundhog on Groundhog Day. Uh, once I was with him, and he had, for some reason, dressed up as the Sun King, maybe for the first day of summer or something. So he's dressed up in a Louis the Sixteenth costume, and we go to pick up his son at school, who was then like a teenager, and we're in the car for about ten minutes, and finally the son says, um, "Dad, why are you dressed like that?" <laughs> so he held a funeral for a tree, and he got in trouble with the media because he had hired a trumpet player to play taps for the dead tree oh, but, but all, of, all of these things were in the service of you know he believed that you know if you didn't promote things and he was kind of like a tumbler like a very good tumbler you had to really promote the hell out of it so that people would pay attention to the parks and they'd get money in the budget and that you'd think that parks were fun and good and exciting and i worked as his press secretary in the early 80s um i was his first press secretary and he said to me, he said, you know, every day, really good and interesting things happening in the parks. A new construction project starts, a park opens, a pool opens, a new program starts. He said, we should promote it, and we should have a daily newsletter that promotes it. I thought, a daily newsletter? How am I going to do that? Uh, but he was insistent, and we created something which we called the Daily Plant, which was a triple pun. Because <laughs> it was like Superman's newspaper, the Daily Planet. It was about parks. It was the plant. But it was also a secret way to plant stories in news media outlets because we sent it out, this daily newsletter, to all the news outlets, and people would feel like they were picking up stories from it. That's so crafty. it was Very like with crafty. everything with Henry, it was a, at least a triple pun. The other thing he loved to do was give out names to things um, nicknames to people, of course, which he gave out 10,000 what he called park names or gnome to park. But also he named parks. He realized he had the the unbridled power to give names to parks. And he'd say, you know, I don't want this park name for a politician or a community board leader. I want to name it for, like, a blue heron or a turtle or a natural feature. Or, or you know, he, he once named a park on the east side, 24 Sycamores Park, because the DOT was trying to cut down trees to widen the entrance lane to the 59th Street Bridge. And he said, if I... Put the number of trees in a the park, they won't be able to cut down a tree. <laughs> <laughs> 
So as we're talking about, you know, naming, I'm just curious, do you think there will be a movement uh, to name a park or a location after Henry and any uh, idea where that should be? Well, yeah, in fact, there was such a movement, which I was part of. A few years ago, mm. we led an effort to name the swimming pool at John Jay Park for him. And we, we knew that he was ill at the time. You know, he's had Parkinson's disease. And um, we wanted to name something for him while he was still alive so he could, you know, enjoy the honor. And we weren't able to pull that off, unfortunately, to try as we might. But he was a huge advocate for public swimming pools. When he was a council member, he held a swim-in at the West 59th Street pool to prevent it from being closed for budget cuts. And then as, as, as Parks Commissioner, he got money from Mayor Koch to restore all the old WPA pools, particularly like the pools of the Bronx and Queens. He advocated for adult evening and morning lap swims, which were never existed before. And he was really lionized by all the people who used the city's pools because they're free. And he was a, very much a, a man of the people. He grew up quite poor, first on the uh, sort of Yorkville and then in Inwood, where his father owned a store that sold can't, sold tents to Boy Scouts. And uh, was, was a genius, child genius. He um, skipped two grades early on. He graduated Bronx Science at 16, went down to City College, graduated from there at 20 and graduated from Harvard Law School at 22 and then went into a never worked as a lawyer. He went straight into public service and spent 40 years in public service. And well, first of all, going back to the pool thing for one second, was yeah. he the one who originated the tradition of the mayor having to jump in the pool at the beginning of the season? Uh, you know, it's certainly it's something he started and I continued it. Uh -huh. I remember. Yes, some mayors, some mayors were game for it and some were not. And I actually got Mayor Bloomberg to do it. I remember. He was very big on having opening ceremonies for things. Even like the first day of spring, he'd hold some kind of goofy event with like balancing eggs and things <laughs> like that. But, you know, the John Jay Pool was a scene of one of the things he, he really enjoyed, which was every... He also liked numbers a lot and played with numbers. And every July 7th, so on 7-7, he would hold an event at the John Jay Pool, which is on 77th Street. <laughs> The event would be at 7.07 a.m., and he'd invite the public and the park's employees to swim seven lengths or seven laps or 77 lengths or laps at 7.07 a.m. on 7.7 and 77th Street. <laughs> and that, that was his idea of fun, and of course, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, um, and he lived all his life near there, on East 84th Street, in a very small apartment, and um, so we, uh, several of us thought it would be great to name the pool at John Jay Park for him because he was such a huge advocate for, for public pools. I almost forgot to ask you what your park's name is. I was A-Train. Uh, <laughs> I was A-Train for three reasons. Um, because I was at the time he was giving out nicknames. I was the Manhattan Borough Parks Commissioner. And the A-Train, of course, runs the length of Manhattan Borough. And then also I'm a jazz fan and love Duke Ellington. And then uh, A-Train is kind of like Adrian. In fact, it was my college nickname. So that was kind of an easy one. He's very thoughtful. He but obviously he, uh, thought he, went into that. So yeah. many, so many interesting nicknames. <laughs> I mean, you know, people are on online now on social media, tweeting and on Facebook, saying, "What's you know, my nickname was X. What was your nickname?" <laughs> it was a big I, deal to get one. I was, was I was deal. so. In fact, I was so excited that one time somebody broke into my car and stole my bag. And the thing that upset me the most was that my park name placard was in that bag. Oh, I, mean, no. I was even more upset about that than somebody breaking into the car, and they replaced it. Yeah. 
Well, a lot of famous people got nicknames. Uh, even Mayor Giuliani had a nickname. He was Eagle. Oh, yeah. I remember yes. that. And then there was, I won't reveal the name because it would be, um, you know, who, who knows if he'd, he'd want to know this. Both people are no longer alive, but a very famous architect was very pleased to get the name Nice Ass. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <Actually> suggested it. <laughs> so... You know, some people, you know, when you say what nickname would you like, they revealed an awful lot about themselves by their choice of nickname. So uh, we've got about a minute left. Final thoughts on what you would like our listeners to remember most about Henry Stern. You know, I think that he um, revered trees and nature. And um, there are tens of thousands of trees that are still alive today and thriving and giving us shade and oxygen, beauty, habitat for trees. And he, all of these, there was hundreds and not thousands of acres of natural woodlands and wetlands and meadows. And when he was commissioner, they were mapped as undeveloped areas, meaning let's go in there and develop them when we have the money and put in paths and roadways and parking lots. And he said, let's not do that. Let's save them as forever wild. And he was way ahead of his time in terms of preserving wild areas in the city. This was 30 years ago before we had an appreciation of the importance of trees for the environment and mitigating climate change. So you know, the, 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 the hijinks aside, he was a very, very serious public servant who cared deeply about the city and fought like a tiger to expand and protect parkland. And uh, we all owe him a huge debt of gratitude. And he said when he was appointed commissioner in his interview in the New York Times, he said, you know, I, I will be the, I will, I will fight for the trees, for the animals, I will fight for the flowers. And he said, I will be a man for all species. And in fact, he was. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, um, Adrian Benepe, where um, it, it, do you know of any as yet uh, any arrangements, or uh, if people want to send uh, condolences to the family and so on? Yeah, there's there's going to be a funeral for him on Sunday okay. at, at Parky Synagogue, and um, the family will be sitting shiva. Um, but they haven't figured out a, any kind of a memorial fund yet. There there may yet be something that the family comes up with. Okay. Um, but he did. He did uh, found the City Parks Foundation. He founded the Historic House Trust. People want to give donations to that. I think he'd be very happy to know that people are giving donations to the various parks nonprofits. Wonderful. Thank you, uh, Adrian Bennett, former uh, Parks Commissioner, speaking about. <coughs> pardon me. Speaking about the legacy of Henry J. Stern. We really appreciate you coming on the program and, and talking about StarQuest, as uh, as he liked to be known as well. As he will always be. Maybe we'll name a star for him. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Thank okay. You. Thank you, Commissioner. Nice to talk to you both. So that's Jeff. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. And I think we actually... Um, if you remember the story I just told about the time my park's name placard got stolen and I got really upset and wanted to get a new one, we happen to have on the phone, I believe the guy who made that happen, uh, Morgan Pem, is a uh, uh, someone that Jeff and I both know, and uh, some of you may also know him uh, as the, uh, the mastermind of the film Get Me Roger Stone, uh, as well as for his work at New York Civic. So Morgan, uh, thanks for calling in the program. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Celeste, and, and thank you, Jeff, for both of you for highlighting uh, Henry's extraordinary legacy. Well, maybe you can tell us a little bit, you know, uh, Commissioner Bannapi just spoke about him, but I mean, you worked with him uh, closely at, at New York Civic as well. I mean, what was it like being around him and, and uh, working with him? Quite a character, quite a character. Uh, he's, he was uh, extraordinary in all ways, um, extremely eccentric, 
Um, he, like me, he was a, a, he's a fellow tourist, and he was a collector of people, a collector of experiences. Um, he was Google Maps before that existed. You could tell him your address, <laughs> and he would tell you what your building looked like, oh um, which was just absolutely amazing. He was also, he collected these rules. Um, and they all had numbers and letters that corresponded to their significance. And I have really internalized so many of these rules because I feel like they um, always shed light uh, upon experiences. Um, one of the rules he got was from, um, it was passed down from Mayor Wagner to his son, Bobby Wagner Jr., who was one of Henry's very close friends. And uh, he would, you know, it was one of his rules that he intoned, which is gratitude is for favors yet to be received. And I find that is one that really um, hits home, both talking about politics and life. Um, he even, and some of his other rules were like, ask the quartermaster. So if you want to get something done, the best thing to do is start with the person who is the lowest in the totem pole, not the highest in the hierarchy, because you have so many more people who have to say no to you before you finally get that definitive no. So if you want to get something done, you start at the bottom and you work your way to the top. So Henry was just a, a font of, of wisdom. And, you know, it's interesting because last year I had read the book, The Hidden Life of Trees, and I wound up thinking about Henry Stern a lot during that book because as a reporter, I remember him focusing so much on, care, you know, people caring and not for and not injuring trees in the city. You know, how did he shape your outlook about the environment around you? You know, Henry just was, in, in a lot of ways, he cared as much for the parks and for the trees as he did for people. And uh, that may sound um, ghastly, but all New Yorkers who love our parks should be indebted to him for the way that he felt about them. You know, even something simple like your, if your dog, uh, your, your dog is allowed to run off the leash at night because he felt like, wow, this is... You know, dogs never have that opportunity to do that in the parks. And so, and he was a great lover of dogs. He had uh, Boomer the Wonder Dog, which was the dog that he would take around as parks commissioner. And he was trying to set the Guinness Book of World Records for having the most petted dog in the world. And he would have, um, you know, one of his, uh, you know, interns carrying around a counter, clicking it every single time the dog was petted. And so, you know, he saw an opportunity to allow animals to thrive in parks just like he wanted people to thrive in parks. And he was just so ingenious in solving problems. You know, a lot of people don't realize the extraordinary contribution he made to um, consumer protections because before he was the parks commissioner, he was um, the, the head of the Department of Consumer Affairs under Commissioner Bess Meyerson. He was her top deputy and really was setting um, so many what came to be revolutionary policies, two of them include um, open dating. So you didn't used to have to put the expiration date on products. And that was a big problem that, you know, grocery stores would put out expired food and there would be no recourse against it. He mandated that grocery stores show you when uh, food expires. That swept the nation, swept the world. Wow. Um, the other thing, he was very meticulous about Pricing. He was extremely cheap or thrifty, however you want to look at it. And so he instituted unit pricing, which is so when you go to the grocery store, it says, you know, it's four for a dollar or one for 25 cents. So you realize that you weren't really getting a bargain and that you could just buy one orange for a quarter instead of four for a dollar. 
and you wouldn't, you know, the sense that you were getting a discount, um, you know, he really let you know the underlying math. So, he, you know, he affected all of our lives in so many small ways that have had extraordinary resonance. So it's true. I think a lot of people, I mean, I think many people may have remembered uh, the commissioner for, you know, associated him with parks, but a lot of these other things in his life, I mean, just his educational background and all these other things that he did for us as, as New Yorkers and as uh, you know, sort of citizens of the world. Um, it's always interesting to me because a lot of these things I didn't even know, and I, I knew him for some time. And before Letitia James, uh, he was the last independent, uh, you know, he, he was elected to the New York City Council as a council member at large in the Liberal Party. And until Letitia James was elected uh, as a working families party, he was the last third party member of the, of the council, a truly an independent voice. He never was a member of either party. Um, he was a fiercely um, liberal in, in the sense of the Liberal Party member and uh, I think that allowed him to um, serve both in the Koch administration, the Giuliani administration, to be embraced broadly across the political spectrum because he wasn't a partisan. His, his um, political uh, affiliation was with trees and with the parks and with the people of New York City. And a few minutes ago, we talked with former Parks Commissioner Adrian Benepe about what he feels would be a, uh, an, a way to honor uh, Henry Stern by naming a park or another location after him. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I worked with Adrian on that, uh, that push for the John Jay Pool. I certainly think that would be great. But, I mean, Henry deserves to have one of the city's great parks named after him. You know, he was largely responsible for the, the turnaround of, of many of our greatest parks, including Central Park. He was critical to the founding of the Central Park Conservancy, which is what made Central Park the absolute um, internationally recognized gem that it is. Um, so I hope that one of the, the great parks of New York City is named after Henry, after Robert Moses. He is really the person who we owe the most thanks to for our extraordinary park system. And I don't want to take anything away from A-Train because he was an extraordinary park commissioner. <laughs> um, no, we're not not making it a contest at all. Um, <laughs> uh, so no worries there. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, even though he had this incredible, uh, so many years of service to the city and to the city parks, was there any project that he was working on that, you know, he sort of wished he could have completed before he ended his service or or anything that he was, you know, still really focused on, um, you know, until uh, until the very end? You know, um, Henry wished that he could have been Parks Commissioner for life. Um, but, you know, he was a great um, advocate for um, New York's history, um, for uh, intellectual achievements. You know, the, he realized that at a certain point that there was not a single monument to intellectual achievement in New York City. And so he partnered with um, the government of Sweden to create um, the, the statue that is in Theodore Roosevelt Park, which is the park around the Museum of Natural History, uh, to create the monument that honors all of the American winners of the Nobel Prize in every area. And um, it was, for me, it was extraordinary because every year the American winners of the Nobel Prize would come together for the small ceremony that the government of Sweden organized at the Natural History Museum. And it would be like Henry and myself and 
Adrian and like six Nobel Prize winners. It was the most like heady experience that you can possibly have. And um, the government of Sweden honored him with knighthood because of this extraordinary uh, achievement, both on behalf of New Yorkers and um, to uh, advance um, Swedish-American relations. So, um, I mean, I just it's there, we could just endlessly go by every single foot in the city. You know, I, I always show my daughter when we go into a park the plaques that have, have Henry's names, the the cobblestones that have his name inscribed in them because the immensity of his achievement is just staggering. You know, he created all the um, the green streets, those, those little patches of green uh, on the side of the road. You know, those are things that he took over from the uh, Department of Transportation and brought under the, the domain of parks um, so that he could expand green spaces everywhere. Morgan, Whenever you see a patch of green, it's because of Henry. Morgan Pam, thank you so much for joining Celeste Katz and me, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI's Driving Forces. Thank you so much. Thank you, Morgan. So as we come to a close, I uh, just want to remind our listeners that uh, we are on every Thursday at 5 o'clock. We may have a special for you next week, and the episode will be up on WBAI.org in a little while. Stay tuned for the news. Coming up on WBAI at 6... As Jeff announced, the evening news with Paul DiRienzo, followed at 6.30 by Justice Matters with Bob Ganji. 7 o'clock, joy of resistance. And 8 o'clock, education at the crossroads. On Saturday, March 30th at 8 p.m., New York will be celebrating composer John Eaton's legacy at Leonard Nimoy Thalia at Peter Norton Symphony Space. The evening will feature music of John Eaton, known as a pioneer in microtonal music, as well as music composed by some of his talented students. Eaton's own Sorwana songs will be a featured work that evening by the John Eaton Foundation, and admission is free. You might take pleasure, as I do, in knowing that WBAI is a media sponsor of this event. Celebrating John Eaton's legacy will take place Saturday, March 30th at 8 p.m. at Leonard Nimoy Thalia at Peter Norton Symphony Space. Saturday, March 30th at 8 p.m. Admission is free, and I'll see you there. This is Cindy Campbell, the first lady of hip-hop, co-host of the Midnight Ravers. For our Woman History Month, or should I say Her History Month show, on Friday, March 29th, from 12 midnight to 2 a.m., we will have Suzanne Kay, daughter of the legendary Diane Carroll. Suzanne will be sharing moments with us about life with her mother. We will also have Connie Winston, a talented actress who will talk about her one-woman show, on the life of Lena Baker, who was an African-American woman that was executed by electric chair in the state of Georgia 
for defending herself against her white employer. So please, join us. Again, that's Friday, March 29th, from 12 midnight to 2 a.m. on WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, for another Ravelicious Women's History Month show. You're listening to WBAI.